Well, this morning we're turning back to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 5 as we look at the last of three miracle accounts in the life of our Lord. It has been a rich study to dig into these accounts and see the power of the Lord, the power that Christ alone has. He is king over the storms. He's king over the spirits. And he's king over sickness. And there is no ruler, there's no monarch, there's no president, there's no tyrant, there's no governor, there's no official of any kind that can rule storms, spirits, or sickness. That belongs to God alone. And so in these accounts, we have been and are being confronted with the reality that Jesus is God, that he is God in flesh. The, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Savior of the world. This is the only hope, the King of storms, the King of spirits, the King of sickness, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we just sang, we, we just encouraged one another. That's what we do when we sing congregationally. We're singing to one another. We're singing to stir up one another. And, and it's so wonderful that we're all here gathered together to do that, to sing to one another. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. And we're, we're echoing and quoting what the angels called the shepherds to do. And yet it's with so much more of a robust understanding that that newborn king is also the perfectly righteous son of God. He is the crucified king that was was buried and on the third day rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and now makes intercession for us and is going to be the returning king and establish his kingdom and reconcile all things to himself. Come and worship. Come and worship. And so it's with that backdrop that we come back to these accounts of Christ's life on this earth. This is the Son of God. And we're going to pick up our, our study today in verse 21, and I'm going to go ahead and, and with these narrative passages, it's a little bit more reading, that's okay. It helps us to see the, the full picture of what is taking place and, and gives us understanding then of what is brought forth from the Word. So we'll be beginning in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5 and reading through the end of the chapter in this account of the synagogue ruler's daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. After Jesus left, according to the wishes of those in the Gerasenes, verse 21, Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, and a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, 
And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Miracles in the Gospels identify Jesus as God and validate the message that he preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What Jesus came to do was to preach the kingdom of God and to make the way for salvation through his perfect life and his sacrificial death on behalf of all those whom the Father would redeem. So we need to understand that miracles in these accounts, just to set aside any kind of misunderstanding. This is, there's no formulas here for how to be instantaneously and miraculously healed. This is a unique time and there are unique purposes for what Jesus is doing as he heals people and even as he raises this 
little girl from the dead. In this particular passage, this set of miracles uses the physical restoration and the resurrection to emphasize Christ's power to save. It's about his power to save. We see that in the vocabulary that's scattered throughout this account when when Jairus, this ruler of the synagogue, comes to Jesus in verse 22 and falls at his feet and begs him, implores him earnestly, saying, my daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. The, the words that we have translated made well are from the word that is often translated to save in our Greek New Testament. And when Jesus responds to the woman who touched him and was made whole in verse 34, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus also uses that same word, again, translated here, made well. It's the word that means to save. In fact, when we look at the account of this woman who was cleansed from her issue of blood, and in Luke chapter 7, the account of the sinful woman who comes to Jesus pleading for forgiveness, and at the end of that account in Luke 7, verse 50, and 49 and 50, he, he forgives her sins. He's questioned by those among, uh, by, by those who witness this. But Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Same word that he uses for this woman here in uh, the crowd who's been cleansed and made well who has been saved, the physical, the physical healing, the physical restoration and the resurrection is evidence of the power of Christ to save completely and to save to the uttermost. Sickness and death are the result of sin. Every sickness, every death is the result of sin. There would be no sickness, there would be no death apart from sin. And so when Jesus is dealing with sickness and death, he is dealing with the effects of sin and he's doing it in a way that demonstrates his miraculous power, his divine power to completely deal with the effects of sin. And we'll see that unfold more and more as we go through the passage this morning. We need to remember that, that the physical desperation in this account represents the spiritual condition of all apart from Christ. We're all destitute. We're all in a place of, of inability to do anything for ourselves apart from Christ. Sin is terminal. Sin is terminal physically and sin is terminal spiritually apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the theme that we'll use this morning as we delve into this passage is that Jesus demonstrates his power to save through healing. Jesus demonstrates his power to save through healing. 
I want us to look this morning, first of all, at this reality that your fallen condition brings desperation. We see this very clearly in the passage that, that desperation is a universal condition. And so I, I can say without, without any nuance to everyone here this morning, to everyone who hears this message, your fallen condition brings desperation. Desperation is a universal condition of mankind. And, and this account in an amazing way, encompasses the desperation of the entire human race. You have a number of contrasts in the two, uh, the two healings and or the, the healing and the resurrection that Jesus performs in, in this account. At the beginning of the account, we're told that one of the rulers of the synagogue comes to Jesus. A ruler of the synagogue was a highly respected Jewish man. He ran, he ran the activities of the synagogue. He selected speakers. He protected the scrolls. He set up the events. He, he was well known. He was respected. He was part of the religious elite, probably in Capernaum or somewhere around that area on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And so we have a man that is well-respected, a man of means, a man of connection, a man who had at his disposal every possibility uh, every human possibility to bring in the best to see to his daughter, his young daughter. In contrast, as Jesus responds to his plea and starts to move to his house, pressed by the crowds that were, the Bible describes it, that these crowds were thronging about him and, and to the point that, that the disciples, when Jesus asks who touched him, the disciples are incredulous that he could even ask that question because of the overwhelming press of the crowd. And yet, within that press, this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who would have been likely excluded from the synagogue because of her uncleanness. This woman who was poor, who had used everything that she had to try to solve what was going on in her body, but had only become worse. This woman who was unknown, rejected, old, comes to Jesus. There's a universal element. A young girl, the synagogue ruler's daughter, an old woman, a desperate father, a man, a desperate woman, a rich man, and a poor woman, a known man, and an unknown woman, a respected man, and a rejected 
woman, a child in desperate need, adults in desperate need, a religious leader and a religious outcast, the whole spectrum, desperate, desperate, at the end of themselves, with no human alternative. Desperation is a universal condition. In Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us that, that sin uh, brought death into this world. Death entered the world through sin, through the sin of Adam. And through the sin of Adam, Adam's guilt was imputed to all mankind. The moment we come into existence, we carry the imputed guilt of Adam. Everyone is desperate. Everyone is going to die. In Adam, all die. Desperation is a universal condition. No one, no one, no one escapes it. And in this passage lays that out for us very clearly by giving, by giving the extreme ends of the spectrum between Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and the unnamed desperate woman who had to sneak up behind Christ and just wanted to touch his garment anonymously. Desperation is a universal condition. But in your fallen condition of desperation that is true of every single person, it's important that we understand that there is no human effort that can deliver you. There is no human effort that can deliver you. All that Jairus could do could not restore his daughter. We're not told what he did. We're not even told the nature of the sickness, but we are told that when he came to Jesus in verse 23. He said, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on, him, on her that she may be made well and live. He had no one else to turn to. Many physicians, look at verses 25 and following. It's, it's interesting that in verses 25 through 28, that's actually a complete sentence, a one run-on sentence that goes on and on to describe the desperation of this woman. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. That was as long as the synagogue's ruler's, synagogue ruler's daughter had been alive and who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had, but was no better, but rather grew worse. She heard the reports of Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Notice in verse 26, she had suffered much. She had, she had, had this affliction, this, this stinging, acute affliction, and her suffering was intense like a lashing under the hands of many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but was worse. 
Every, every human option had been completely exhausted. Many physicians could not restore the woman's health. There was, there was nothing human left to do. She could not be restored by the efforts of human hands. Human effort cannot deliver you. In this state of desperation, it's emphasized that there was nothing that anyone could do for either of these desperate people. And so it's important that we would that we would recognize that in our that in our desperate human condition, there's no physical exertion. There's no scientific advancement. There's not an abundance of wealth. It's impossible to even live a moral life that's filled with good works. None of those things will deliver you from your desperate condition before the Lord. We're desperate. And while many advances are a blessing, you know, I love... I'm very thankful during the holiday season that when there's a lot of rich foods that I can run to the cupboard and take Tums. But you know what? Tums aren't going to save my life. We're thankful for the advancements. We're thankful for the things that keep us well and strengthen us and treat the, the many weaknesses that we have. We're thankful for the skills and common grace that God has given to many. But, but ultimately, ultimately, there is nothing that anyone can do to deliver you from your desperate human condition. Something will kill you. You will die. You will have a disease that is terminal. You will have an accident that is fatal. Something is going to kill you. In Adam, all die. And there's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that anyone else can do to deliver you from that reality. You will be confronted with death. You will be confronted with the death of a loved one. You're going to face this moment of desperation. Your your flesh and, and your blood will fail you. And there's nothing anyone can do. We need to let the desperation in this account strike closely to home. We need to to come face to face with the reality that I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And if you need to be reminded of that, and, and, I, and I'm saying this with a, with a heavy heart, knowing, knowing that likely there are loved ones that are, that are buried in places like the cemeteries around this area, Milford, Mount Moriah, you go into those places and what do you see? You see the witness that you will die. You, you will be in a place like that. As my neighbor says, there's a day that you're going to be on the other side of the grass. And that's it. Life is over. Nothing will save you from that. 
The desperation is real. Our, our culture, our society does everything possible to push away that reality and to deceive us that death really isn't coming. But it is. Scripture says it is. And Scripture says it is because of a universally unchangeable condition, sin. It will come. We're surrounded with witnesses that the situation is desperate for all of us. You know, it's such, it's such a burden. It's so distressing to hear and to know that at this time of year, when we focus on the coming of Jesus Christ to save his people from sin, there are so many so-called churches that minimize the reality of why Christ came. They minimize the reality and, it, and, and they do it in a, in a spiritually criminal way by engaging in sentimental rituals. Let's feel good about Christmas time. Or giving personal success pep talks when there are people sitting before them that are desperate and that are going to die. How can, you, how can you talk to people about how great this life is and how you just need to speak wealth into your life? That's No, that's not going to be the answer. How can you give people just sentimental rituals to make them feel warm and snuggly in the wintertime when they might not live to see the next year? No, our situation is desperate. And the answer is Jesus and Jesus alone. You, like, like the woman and like the synagogue ruler, you live in a fallen condition, and, and that condition makes you desperate. And so secondly, secondly, this is a very simple message this morning. There's a lot of verses here, and there's a lot of details that we could spend a lot of time on, but it's just going to be a simple message. Secondly, your only hope is Jesus. Your only hope is Jesus. You live, your fallen condition brings desperation. It's universal. Everyone is in this desperate condition. Human effort cannot deliver you. Second, your only hope is Jesus. Jairus, this synagogue ruler, this man responsible for organizing the events, for setting up the services, for getting the speakers, for protecting the scrolls, a highly respected Jew. Many of the Jews have already rejected Jesus. Back in chapter 3, they're looking for ways to kill Jesus. Yet this man now, as, as he comes to this point in, in his life when, when his 12-year-old daughter 
at a time when a, when a, when a woman would be celebr- a young woman would be celebrating coming out of girlhood and into womanhood, a time when she might even be being betrothed for marriage. It's supposed to be a time of excitement, a time of rejoicing, and a time of blessing. And yet he is confronted with the mortality of his daughter. She's about ready to die. She's she's desperate, and his life is marred with sorrow at the anticipation of her death. And although he is respected, although he is part of the religious elite, he he comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet begging him, begging him to come and touch his daughter, to lay his hands on her. Look at what it says there. In verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him. This this respected man falls at the feet of Jesus, and, and the word implored is the same word back in verse 18, that the man who had been delivered from the demons, he comes to Jesus and begs Jesus that he might go with him. This man, this respected Jew, is begging Jesus, Jesus, you're the only one that can do anything. You're the only one that can, ha- that can heal my daughter. Jesus is your only hope. And so from Jairus and his exercise of faith, that continues even in the face of opposition at the end of the passage from, from Jairus were, were instructed the call, the invitation is extended from the word of God. Cling to Jesus Christ instead of your reputation. Your reputation is nothing in your desperate condition. Cling to Christ. You know, in the book of Acts as the gospel continues to move forward and particularly in Acts 17 and verses 4 and 12 when Paul is preaching in Thessalonica, it's recorded that a number of leading and prominent people turn to the Lord. What a statement of grace. Leading and prominent people in these cities They recognize, you know what, our position means nothing in the face of our desperation for our sin before God. We need Christ. Cling to Christ instead of your reputation. What reputation do you have? Your reputation in the eyes of the world will not save your soul. Your reputation in the eyes of the world will not be of spiritual benefit to your children. Without Christ, you are nothing and you have nothing. Jairus is seeing this firsthand when when the reality of the desperation that comes from death, that comes from sickness, that comes from things that are out of his control sets in and comes crashing down in his life at this time that's supposed to be filled with celebration and joy. He realizes nothing matters. I need Jesus. He's the only hope that I have. How, How many... How many people turn away from Christ because of their pride? 
because of the reputation. I'm a tough guy. I don't need any help. I'm a rich person. I don't need anything. Even I'm viewed as a godly person, but I know I'm not. Your reputation will do nothing when you pass from this life to eternity. Christ and Christ alone. Cling to Christ instead of your reputation. The woman, in contrast, here's this woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's been unclean for 12 years for as long as the little girl has been alive. She hasn't been able to participate in the religious life of the synagogue. Even her personal relationships had to be Uh, had to be engaged in, if at all, from a distance. For a dozen years, she'd been a social outcast. And we're told that as she comes to Christ, and and in many ways, it was at great risk for her as an unclean person to be in the midst of that throng of people. Essentially, she was a contaminant. And yet... She makes her way through that throng to Jesus. She tries to do it anonymously. She has faith in Christ alone. If only I can touch his garment, the hem of his garment, I will be made well. And as she works her way through the crowd and reaches out to touch his garment and she touches his garment, her faith Her faith does make her well. That's what Jesus says. And the tangible description is there for our benefit again so that we're confronted with the the overwhelming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told in verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. When? Immediately. What the doctors could not do for 12 years, the power of Christ went in and immediately healed her. And Jesus, perceiving that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now that was the worst thing that woman could have heard. She didn't want to be known. She she was an outcast. His disciples, of course, say, you see the crowd pressing around you? You say, who touched me? But he's looking around to see who has done it. In verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She recognized that as one who'd been healed, she now was summoned to face the one who healed her. Even if it exposed her shame. And so she came, she was fearful, she was trembling. She didn't want to. But Jesus had pursued her for a 
a confession. And, and despite the, the fright that she had as, as this outcast steps publicly forward to acknowledge what happens, she obeys the summons of her Lord. And so she comes to Christ and she clings to Christ despite her shame. Here's Jairus. He has a reputation to protect. He comes to Christ and says, you know what? My reputation is of nothing. Jesus alone. And now the woman on the other side, she doesn't have anything to protect of a reputation, but she's ashamed of her social situation and yet when come when summoned by Christ she steps forward despite the shame and and it says that she told him the whole truth with all those people you know there are some of you that you're you're looking at this and you're like i that that terrifies me to stand in front of people and talk terrifies me You understand what she's dealing with. But Jesus said, no, I healed you. I want these people to hear, to know. It's part of the exercise of faith that true faith will indeed ultimately acknowledge Christ. Even even in the midst of a cowering shame. She comes to Christ despite her shame. That physical restoration pointed to the greater restoration of her soul. Not not every healing miracle that Jesus performed was also a saving miracle or, or, or part of the saving of a soul, but from what we find in this passage and of Jesus' tender response to her, Look at what he says in verse 34. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Despite her shame, she acknowledged Christ. Jesus alone was her hope. Jesus only is your hope, so cling to Christ instead of your reputation. Cling to Christ even if it exposes shame. And and there's a reality of, of coming to Christ, coming to Christ and, and seeing who we are in, in the light of who Christ is. We, we are ashamed. We are ashamed of our sins. We're ashamed of our past. We're ashamed of our habits. We, we have so much to be ashamed of when we see ourselves in the light of Christ. But don't let that prohibit you. No, come to Christ and know that he is the one who cleanses from all sin. He is the one who forgives. And despite whatever shame we have, despite whatever reservations we have, Christ in his tenderness and his kindness receives those that he draws to himself with sweet, comforting words. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. 
You know, we're moving toward Mark 8 and Jesus' description of discipleship. And in verse 38, Jesus says something that is striking. Mark 8, 38, as He clarifies discipleship to those around Him. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Is shame keeping you back from Christ? He's your only hope. And while shame might keep you back from Christ now, Ultimately, Jesus says, if you're ashamed now, he'll be ashamed of you later. Christ is your only hope. And this dear woman responds to the pursuit of Jesus, yes, in fear and trembling, but she falls down before him and says the whole truth. She confesses. This is the one who made me whole, and he's the only one who could. Jesus is your only hope. We've seen that Jesus is our only hope. We cling to Christ despite what it might cost our reputation, despite the potential to shame. But there's another aspect in this passage of clinging to Christ, and that is that we cling to Christ when others doubt. There's a lot of doubt in this passage. In verse 31, the disciples doubt the power of Christ. His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? The disciples doubted that someone could individually experience the power of Christ in the, in the midst of the crowds. And, and you know, you think about the woman, she could hear those words and think, well, I mean, his disciples are, are saying, there's no way you could know that that power went out from you. I'm, I'm just going to hide behind that. I'm going to hide behind their doubt. No, but she responds not to the doubt of the disciples but she responds to the summoning of the Lord despite the doubt of the disciples. Cling to Christ even when others doubt. And sadly, so often, so often when, when people are, are wrestling and the Spirit of God is, is at work, the, the words of other people will, will come into their minds as stumbling blocks. The doubts of other people will, will become obstacles to them to come to Christ, but don't let that keep you from Christ. Respond to the summoning of the Son of God. Come to Christ when others doubt. At the end of the passage, in the last part of the passage, as Mark transitions from the healing of the woman and the delay that has taken place, In verse 35, we're told that as he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the the brother of James. 
And they came to the house and saw of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. What do we have in this portion of the passage? Well, the disciples doubted Christ in regard to the woman. She responded to his summons. Here, the messengers and the mourners assume that death is final. They assume that the girl was now beyond the power of Christ to do anything for her now that she was dead. Don't bother the the teacher any further. And when they come to the house and and the professional weepers and wailers are there and and making a, a great racket, because of the death of this daughter. And and, and Jesus says, no, let me give you another perspective. Let me give you a true perspective on death. She is asleep. They laugh. They laugh at him. Ah, there's others doubting. But what does Jesus say to Jairus in the middle of all of that? Verse 36 but overhearing what they said. And the word, you might see a little number by that word in your Bible. I have one in mine. And the note says that that word can also be ignoring. That word can also mean ignoring. He probably did both. He heard what they said and he ignored it. That's That's what they say. That's what the doubters say. Jairus, Jairus, do not fear. Stop your fearing and keep on believing. Stop your fearing and keep on believing. Cling to me. Believe in me even when others doubt. One of the commentators that I use as I've been working through Mark makes this interesting observation. He says that the professional Mourners represent the hardcore realist of every age who decide when empirical realities have foreclosed on divine possibilities. Ah, she's dead. There's nothing that can be done. Jesus says, no, stop fearing. Keep on believing. Cling to Christ even when others doubt. Well, we've seen the desperate situation. We've seen that Jesus is our only hope. But what now? Well, third this morning, we need to note that the power of Jesus reaches beyond, beyond your desperation. The power of Jesus reaches beyond your desperation. Coming back again to the healing of the woman, Jesus' power immediately cured an internal disease. And notice the personal element of this. In verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, turned to the crowd and said, who touched my garments? 
Jesus' power immediately cured an internal disease that doctors only could, only made worse over time. And, and that power to cure, that power to restore is a personal power. Jesus felt that power depart from him for the healing purposes of restoring that woman. You know, sometimes we think of the power of God as some force, some impersonal force. You know, I believe in the power of God. But what we find here as Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, is, is interacting with people. And as he's restoring this woman, there is a personal nature to the power of God. It healed this woman and Jesus knew it. He knew specifically that it restored that woman. And her healing, the, the complete healing from this internal disease points to an ultimate reality that Christ is able to completely renew the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 42 through 44, Paul talks about the reality of the resurrection body that we're going to have. Yes, one day, one day this body of flesh, this body of sin, it's going to be laid to rest. It's going to be put in the ground on the other side of the grass and there's going to be a grave marker over it and, and we're going to start to decompose and all of the sicknesses and diseases that that we have are, are there in the ground and decomposing. And one day, though, there's going to be a voice from heaven, a voice from the Son of God that's going to cause everyone to rise up. And we're going to be raised up with a brand new glorified body by the personal power of God. He knew that power went out. And she was immediately restored. Oh, what hope! What hope! What joy we have as believers in Christ. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus' power cured the internal disease. But then, as we come to the end of the passage... The doubters have been left outside. They don't have the privilege of witnessing this miracle. Peter, James, and John have been invited in. And this is, you know, this is an aside, but think about Peter preaching, Peter writing the epistles that he wrote, and, and he got to witness this. Think about John the epistles that he wrote and the revelation. He got to witness this. James, who was martyred for his faith in Acts 12, as he's getting ready to be killed for the sake of Christ, he got to witness this. And her parents, they come into the room where she is, which again points to the wealth of of Jairus, a house with many rooms. They come where this girl is. She's died. Just those few 
And Jesus, verse 41, taking her by the hand, this still hand that can't reach up to Christ, it's cold, dead. The blood has stopped to flow. Picks up that lifeless hand and says to her, Talitha kumi, it's Arabic, Aramaic, the common language. And it's translated for us, little girl. Little girl whose life is not in her body anymore. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Perhaps you've stood by the bed of a loved one who has passed away. And you wanted them to come back. They didn't. You, the, you, you know the finality of death. But here is Jesus. He's given a command. And immediately, right? There's, there's no dramatic pause. <laughs> Child arise, and immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years old, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Jesus' power reaches beyond the veil of death, and it called that girl just like it called Lazarus, come back she did the power of Jesus reaches beyond it reaches beyond your desperation do not fear only believe little girl I say to you arise now there are a number of applications but the primary application is again that Jesus saves to the uttermost. He will call us to himself. He will call us out of our graves or when our bodies are when our bodies are laid to rest, right? That's what it means to be asleep in Christ. Our bodies are laid to rest. We were with the Lord in spirit. Our bodies are laid to rest. But there's a day coming when the voice of Christ will go beyond the veil of death and all that are in their tombs will rise. And the hope that we have as God's people is immense. Jesus reaches beyond your desperation. You know, there is a reality that in this life we do deal with chronic illnesses Sometimes they're resolved and sometimes they're not. But when we understand the power of Christ, when we understand his sovereignty and his work to conform us to his own image, 
thinking of the reality that Jesus reaches beyond our desperation, know, believer, that Jesus is already on the other side of that chronic illness. Whatever the outcome is, Jesus is already on the other side. He reaches beyond, beyond your desperation. Jesus is already on the other side of your family tragedy. His power reaches beyond your desperation. Jesus is already on the other side of this life. He already fills eternity. He is beyond your desperation. Christ is your only hope. His power reaches beyond your desperation. And Christ tenderly, we see the tenderness of Christ in this passage Daughter, your faith has made you well. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Jesus tenderly leads those who trust in him from from fear to a settled faith. His power reaches beyond your desperation. His power and, and compassion fill and still the fearful heart as his ability to deliver is applied. Again, we, we can't read this passage and understand the thrust of it that Jesus is demonstrating his power to save through the miracles of healing that he's accomplishing here. I can't read this passage without a passage from John chapter 5 coming to mind. This is our ultimate hope. This is the ultimate hope of all those who turn to Christ. Jesus says in John 5, beginning in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All power belongs to Christ. He is God. He is the king over creation. He is the king over the storm. Storms bow to his word. He is the king over the spiritual realm. The the most unruly demons, no matter how many they are, they bow to his word. He is the king over sickness and over death. And all death and all sickness will forever be abolished at the word of Christ when there is a final resurrection and all things are reconciled in him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all life given to him. And at his word, at his summons, there will not be one person that has been created from the beginning of time until the the time that Christ utters the word that will not be raised up in the final resurrection of Christ. All will hear his voice. And so... Christ instantly cleanses those who come to him in faith and those who have come to Christ in obedience of faith are raised up to the resurrection of life. 
And the moment, the moment that a person turns from their sin, the moment that Christ makes them alive in himself and they turn to him for forgiveness, they have eternal life. They're justified. They're redeemed. They're washed and made whiter than snow. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus rescued you from spiritual death when he called you to himself. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in that same way that he gave you spiritual life, He will call you home when he raises you with a glorified body. Now, those who witnessed that miracle were called to be silent because the fullness of Christ's work had not yet been completed. Not us. We are called to proclaim the good news. I think one of my favorite incarnation hymns, I don't know how theological sound it was growing up as a little kid was go tell it on the mountains I like the energy of it go tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ is born we have a message of life to proclaim to those who are dead so unbeliever turn to the one who has the power over death you have no other hope Christian, for us today, as we're gathered here, (laughs) you know what we all are here? All we are is a collection of very desperate people. Every one of us. We're just a collection of desperate people who are diseased and who are dying. I mean, let's just... Be honest. That's what I am. That's what you are. All the good we have is only because of Christ who called us and raised us. That's our, that's our hope individually. That's why we're gathered together here. And, and when we think about that, it eliminates pride. It eliminates all those things that want to infect a body of Christ and bring division. No, no, no. We're just desperate people relying on the grace of God. That's it. And so may we, as Jairus did for his daughter, may we be faithful in going to Christ for our families. May we be faithful in going to Christ for those in the body of Christ. May we be faithful in praying for one another in our desperate situations. We all need to pray for one another. Like Epaphras prayed for the Colossian church and struggled that, we would, that they would be, be fixed and stand firm in the will of God. Jesus is our only hope. He is king. Well, may the Lord give us his grace to constantly turn to Christ our Savior the only one who can cleanse us, the only one who saves us, and the one who will one day call us to himself. Father, thank you today 
for your precious word. Thank you for your son. And oh Lord, we pray that we would honor Christ. Those of us who are in Christ, that we would honor Christ with all that we have, with all that we are. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our many sins. And Lord, we pray today for those who are outside of Christ, that they would see that they have no other hope. Oh, Lord God, be merciful, we pray. Thank you for these dear people who have sat under the word of God today, and we pray that you would finish and complete your good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.